following message is presented by Erie Evangelical Free Church in Erie, Illinois. We are a church that exists for the good of our community and are proud to share the gospel of Jesus Christ as we seek to know him and make him known. Many of you may remember the feeling you had when you graduated high school. Right, students, you'll get there one day, I promise. Okay. But you think, back to, <laughs> you think back to that time when you, you graduated high school, and there's, there's a unique experience of graduating high school or completing high school. Um, it, it, it's a unique feeling because when you graduate high school, and you probably remember this, there's this kind of sigh of relief, right? like, oh, I made it. I get to move on from, from here. And many of you felt that. But at the same time, at the same time, there's an excitement about what lies ahead, isn't there? Like, you go, I made it through this, so now I get to go on to what's next. I get to look at that next phase of life. And whether you were going to work, or you were starting a family, or you were going to college, or you were joining the military, or whatever it was you were doing after high school, you graduated, you look back, you said, I'm glad I'm done. Great. Okay, now what's next? And they're, the two are almost intertwined. This is kind of where we find ourselves in Nehemiah chapter 13. See, for the people of of Israel, the people living in Jerusalem, God had sent Nehemiah to lead them in in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And now the walls were built. And through that time, God had confronted the people about their sin. They had gone through the, the practice of repentance. They'd celebrated God's goodness, God's deliverance. They'd celebrated everything God had accomplished. They were relieved to be done with the work. But Nehemiah understands that that was never meant to be the end of the story. It was simply the start of what is going to continue. And so as we look at Nehemiah chapter 13, I want you to ask yourselves, how do we in our lives, in our walk with the Lord, not settle for some finished task? How do we not look at our faith and go, if I just do this, I will be done. If I can just get to here, I'll be finished. If I can just make it to that, then we'll be good. How do we not see our faith as a finished task, but instead look at it as a lifetime of growing and maturing and developing into the people God has called us to be and the work he has called us to do? Nehemiah chapter 13. I've told a few of you that this, this passage was really hard for me to prepare to, to, to talk about this morning because it's set up kind of strangely. So before we even get into the passage, I'm going to help you fill out the outline. You can fill out the whole outline. If you're a note taker and you got the, the notes for today's sermon, I'm going to give you the whole outline right now up front before we even go on. Okay? And number one, we're going to see in Nehemiah 13, two principles Okay, two principles for living a, a committed life, staying the course in our faith even after one task is done. Okay, and the first principle is this. We cannot tolerate what is wrong. And number two, we cannot compromise what is right. We cannot tolerate what is wrong and we cannot compromise what is right. Through, through Nehemiah chapter 13, we're going to see these two principles come up over and over again. So, I want to just go ahead and we're going, to, we're going to read through this. And we're going to see how these apply to this passage. And once we get through it, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about what we do with these in our own lives. 
So let's start Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Right, Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 1 through 3 says, At the time, at that time, the book of Moses was read publicly to the people. The command was found written in it that, the, that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God because they did not meet the Israelites with food and water. Instead, they hired Balaam against them to curse them. But our God turned their curse into a blessing. When they heard the law, they separated all those of mixed descent from Israel. Okay, stop right there. Verses one through three. What this basically says is the Israelites had allowed foreigners to come into the temple. The temple was God's holy place where he set up to meet with, for his people to meet with him. And they had allowed foreigners who did not worship God to come into the temple. See, what happens from there is that the Israelites go, oh, we read the book of the law where this isn't right. And so what do they do? They repent and they fix the situation. They don't tolerate this impurity that had come into the temple. Right? These Ammonites and Moabites had come in and, and, and brought impurity before a pure and holy God. The Israelites really easily could have been like, yeah, it's not that big a deal. We're fine. But instead, they repent and they fix it. Right? They refuse to tolerate what is wrong when it's brought to their attention. So verse 1 through 3. They didn't tolerate what was wrong. Okay, let's go on. Verses 4 through 9. I'm not going to read this whole thing, but but I want you to hear what happens in verses 4 through 9. It says, Now before this, the priest Eliashib had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was a relative of Tobiah and had prepared a large room for him. Okay, stop right there. Remember Tobiah from earlier in the book of Nehemiah? If you've been here as we studied through, Nehemiah is an Ammonite. What did we just hear in verses 1 through 3? that the Israelites had allowed the Ammonites and Moabites to bring impurity into the temple. The priest Eliashib was related to an Ammonite, Tobiah, who was, remember, he's kind of this little rat of a guy who sidles up to anybody who's winning. He's like, hey, I'm on the winning side. I've always been your friend. Right in the beginning of the book, he's fighting against the Israelites. And then once the Israelites start building noise, he's like, oh, no, I've always been on your side, guys. But this Ammonite, now, because of his relationship with the high priest, is given not just, not just access to the temple, but he's given a room in which to keep as his own little garage. So he keeps all his stuff in the temple. You go on, and down in verse 6, it says, While all this was happening, I was not in Jerusalem. Okay, Nehemiah was not in Jerusalem. Nehemiah had come to Jerusalem, and he spent 12 years there. Spent 12 years in Jerusalem. And then he had to go back. Right? If you remember back in, in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 6, when he's going before King Artaxerxes and trying to get permission for this trip to go build the wall. Chapter 2, verse 6 says, The king, with the queen seated beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you return? So I gave him a definite time, and it pleased the king to send me. That definite time was apparently 12 years. And after 12 years, Nehemiah had to go back. He went back, he saw the king, he spent some time, and then he comes back to Jerusalem. And this is where we're going to find the rest of this passage, right? He was not in Jerusalem. 
And so Eliashib gives this Ammonite a room in the temple. Skip down to verse eight. It says, I was greatly displeased. So when he finds it, when Nehemiah returns and he finds that Tobiah the Ammonite had been given a room, he says, I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household possessions out of the room. I ordered that the rooms be purified. So eventually he returns and he finds God's purity compromised by the high priest and by Tobiah. And so what does he do? He doesn't compromise God's purity. He not only tells Tobiah to leave, but he takes all his stuff and he boots it out of the temple. Throws all the stuff out of the room. And not only that, but he comes back to the room and he purifies it. Because this is, the God, this is God's temple. This is not a garage for the Ammonites. So he clears it out and he purifies the room. Nehemiah doesn't compromise God's purity. Let's go to the, the next story in this passage. Starting in verse 10, it says, I also found out that because the portions of the Levites had not been given, each of the Levites and the singers performing the services had gone back to his own field. Okay, and the rest is going to describe what happens here. Right, verse 10 through 14 tell us that the, the Levites and the singers, those who led the worship at the temple, this holy place where God met with his people, had not been paid, had not been fed, had not been given what they needed in order to continue to lead the worship of the Lord. So they went back to their own homes, to their own fields, so they could eat, so that they could provide for their families. They had to leave their posts and left no one to lead the worship of the Lord in the temple. Well, Nehemiah comes and he finds this. And Nehemiah refuses to tolerate this wrong. He refuses to allow the people to sacrifice their worship to the Lord. And in order to keep the people's focus properly on their God, he says, we're going to fix this. And he sends people out to collect what was supposed to be collected for the, the singers and the leaders. And he brings them back into the temple so that they can lead the people in the worship of the Lord. Nehemiah doesn't tolerate this wrong. He fixes it. Okay, let's go on. Verse 15 through 22, we get another story that happens here. It says, at that time, verse 15, at that time, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath. They were also bringing in stores of grain and loading them with donkeys, along with wine, grapes, figs, all kinds of goods were being brought to Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. Okay, stop there. What's happening here? The people are breaking the Sabbath. Remember, the Sabbath is the command that you work six days, you rest one, you dedicate a full day to the Lord, to the worship of his name, to the sacrifice of your time, your treasures, your talents, all to the Lord. And the Israelites had just been breaking this. They'd been doing business. And, and you know why they'd been doing business on the Sabbath? You know why they did this? Because all the nations around them did business on the Sabbath. Nobody else cared about the Sabbath. So when other merchants, other traders came and, and needed to do business, they didn't care that it was the Sabbath. And if the Israelites didn't work on that day, they were going to lose out on some business. So they break the Sabbath. 
Nehemiah doesn't compromise the Sabbath that he knows is right. Watch what happens. In verse 17, Nehemiah gathers the people. He says, I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Right? Nehemiah doesn't say, hey, you probably shouldn't do that. He doesn't say, God said, you know, you should, you should, you should have the Sabbath rest. Right? Maybe you should listen to the Lord. I don't know. No, he says, what is this evil you are doing? Stop it. Knock it off. You're sinning. Don't continue in your sin. Nehemiah doesn't compromise on what is right, on God's commands. And in fact, it goes so far as this. Watch this. I love this part. Down in verse 20, after he's commanded the people, no, 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 you keep the Sabbath. It says once or twice. Keep that in mind. He says once or twice. Once or twice, the merchants and those who sell all kinds of goods camped outside of Jerusalem. But I warned them, why are you camping in front of the wall? If you do it again, I'll use force against you. Right, so the merchants were coming and, and they're like, okay, so Nehemiah, you shut down all trading on the Sabbath. We'll just camp out outside the city. We won't do business with your people. But we're over here, guys. Hey, hey, Jerusalem. We're not, we're not working, but we're over here. Nehemiah understands that the merchants are tempting the people of Israel. So we're here. But instead of allowing that to happen, Nehemiah goes up to him and goes, listen, you guys want to be here? That's fine. But I'm going to beat the snot out of you. This is only going to happen once or twice. And apparently, I mean, think about what's happening. There are groups of merchants here, and Nehemiah says, don't do this anymore. And it only happens once or twice. You think he was pretty serious in what he told them? What he presented them as the options for them to move on? Yeah. Nehemiah refuses to compromise the Sabbath. He refuses to compromise the goodness of God's law. Okay, let's go on. Next, next story. In verses 23 through 20, 29. Starting verse 23 says, In those days I also saw Jews who had married women from Ashdod, Amnon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples, but could not speak Hebrew. I rebuked them, cursed them, beat some of their men, and pulled out their hair. I forced them to take an oath before God and said, You must not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters as wives for your sons or for yourselves. Didn't King Solomon of Israel sin in a matter like this? Then down in verse 28 says, Even one of the sons of Jehodia, the son of the high priest Eliashib, had become the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. So I drove him away from me. Nehemiah doesn't tolerate sin. He doesn't tolerate what is wrong. Right? He again encounters these mixed marriages among the people of Israel. Mixed marriages, marriages with people who didn't hold to the worship of the Lord God. Marriages where the spouse will drag them away from a pure and holy worship of the Lord. And Nehemiah sees this and he says, listen, you know this is wrong. The law tells you this is wrong. Now stop. And he removes those of mixed marriages. And he, again, is pretty serious with this. It says he, he rebukes them, he beats them, he pulls their hair out. 
He is so focused on God's holiness and God's goodness that he refuses to allow this sin to continue with the people of Israel. And he even reminds them, remember, this is destructive. This will be destructive in your life. And he reminds them of Solomon. And we've, we, we talked about Solomon when we went back through Ecclesiastes. But in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1 through 4, we get the story of how Solomon, the wisest, best leader of all time, falls away and leaves his kingdom in ruin. It says, King Solomon loved many foreign women in addition to Pharaoh's daughter, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonite, Hittite, women from the nations about which the Lord had told Israel, you must not intermarry with them and they must not intermarry with you because they will turn your heart away to follow other gods. To these women, Solomon was deeply attached in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 who were concubines, and they turned his heart away. When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away to follow other gods. Nehemiah says, listen, you want to keep intermarrying with people who don't worship your God? They're going to drag you down. And just like Solomon, they will bring destruction upon your head. And so he drives those out who are defiling the name of the Lord. Last story, verse 30 and 31. Nehemiah closes this writing. He says, so I purified them from everything foreign and assigned specific duties to each of the priests and the Levites. I also arranged for donations of wood at the appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, my God, with favor. Nehemiah here recaps everything he's done for the people of Israel and in Jerusalem. And he reminds us that why he did everything he did was for the glory of his God. It was about the glory of the Lord that he lived, that he served. He reminds us that he refused to compromise God's good law for any reason while he was there. So, you get these six stories. Each one gives you a picture of Nehemiah either refusing to tolerate what is wrong or refusing to compromise what is right. And Nehemiah shows us in this that we must also reject what is evil and be faithful to what is good if we are going to stay the course of our faith through our lives. So the question becomes, okay, how do we put this into practice in our lives? What does this mean to us today? So let's talk about that for just a couple minutes here. First, let's talk about we cannot tolerate what is wrong. If we're going to stay the course, we must adhere to this principle. We cannot tolerate what is wrong. It is easy in our lives and in our world to justify or to simply tolerate sin, isn't it? Isn't it much easier if we just turn our backs and pretend that sin doesn't exist and tolerate it? See, Israel let foreigners into the temple. They failed to pay their worship leaders. And they married people who didn't share their faith. Are any of those really all that bad? I mean, think about it. Are any of those horrible things? I mean, it's not like they were running around murdering people or practicing idolatry. These were minor issues. I mean, really, in, in our eyes, aren't these minor issues? Yeah. But in each case, tolerating what, what seems like a minor issue, a minor sin in our eyes, by doing that, they rejected the Lord and they plunged their hearts into rebellion and opened the door for greater and greater unfaithfulness. To 
paraphrase John Wesley. He said, what one generation tolerates, the next celebrates. And what Wesley said was, if we just tolerate sin, and we go, that's wrong, and we know it, our children will grow up thinking that is right, and that's perfectly okay. And here's the thing, that's not just a generational truth. That's a truth that exists in your life and in my life. If we walk around tolerating sin long enough, we will become hardened to it and we will become accepting of it. And it'll just be a way of life. When I was in seminary, I I broke a tooth. It was one that had a, a filling in it. And so I broke the tooth, the filling fell out. I had this like half, half tooth. Um, I keep going over here, but it's actually over here. But I don't want to hit the mic. So, <laughs> so I had this like half tooth. And it wasn't that big a deal. It didn't bother me. And so I'm like, I can just deal with it. It's fine. So I walk around for several months with this half tooth in my mouth. And then one day, I'm, I was at a, I remember it, I was at a, a camp. I was leading worship for a weekend retreat. And all of a sudden, the pain just became unbearable. And when it hit, I remember finishing a session at this camp and going back and just lying in the dark in the bedroom, and I've never been in so much pain in my life. I I, I cannot remember a time that I hurt more. And so I I went to the drugstore. I got some stuff that kind of helped me get through the weekend, but that next week I went to see the dentist. And they look at it, and they said, "Uh, all we can do is pull the rest of it out. All they could do is go in and yank it, and so I still have this big hole inside of my, my mouth up here because I don't, I don't have a tooth there. It's this great reminder of what happens when we tolerate sin. Because that broken tooth wasn't a big deal. It wasn't that bad. It didn't hurt. But eventually, the pain got so bad and the destruction got so bad that there was nothing to do but yank it out by the roots. There's a conversation for us to have about our culture's gross misunderstanding and misuse of the word tolerance. That's not the conversation we're going to have today, because that's not what this passage is about. That's a conversation for another day. For today, what I want us to see is that this passage, this truth that we cannot tolerate what is wrong, is about us looking at our own hearts. It's about us looking at the sin in our lives. See, to tolerate sin... for me to tolerate sin in my own heart weakens my faith and it disconnects me from God's will for my life. Because that sin never shrinks. If I tolerate it, it grows worse until it becomes destructive. So we cannot tolerate sin in our lives. We must do whatever it takes to uproot it and to remove it so that we can be healthy and strong in our walk with the Lord. In Matthew chapter five, Jesus gives us this this well-known passage, verses 27 through 30. He says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better to lose one of your body parts and for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. 
I don't know if Jesus means literally you need to gouge out your eyes and cut off your hands. But what Jesus is saying here is that you cannot coddle your sin and think that it won't lead to destruction. He says, your sin will destroy you. So don't coddle it. Do whatever you have to do to get rid of sin in your life. Do whatever you need to do so that you are not tolerating that sin. And that leaves us with a question. Are we willing to boldly and violently, if we must, deal with the sin in our lives? Are you and I ready to take that step? Are we ready to boldly deal with sin in our lives? And I don't know what this means for you. Right? Maybe for you it's that being on social media makes you anxious and you need to just delete it from your phone. Maybe you're somebody who the, the local news makes you angry and you need to just stop watching. There are lots of other ways for you to get the important news that you need. But if watching the news makes you angry, you need to stop watching. Maybe there's a relationship in your life that is damaging your faith, that is bringing you down, and as much as you want to hang on to it, it's time to let it go. Maybe it's your, your money, your car, your boat, your, your RV, your retirement fund that, that makes you very self-focused, that draws all of your attention. Maybe you need to give that stuff away. Maybe your job keeps you from loving your family well and being present for them. Maybe you need to quit, find a new job. None of these things are easy, right? But are we willing to deal boldly with what we need to deal with in order to not tolerate what drags us away from a faithful worship of our God? What sins in our lives have we abandoned? What sins in your life have you tolerated? Have you just lived with? I can handle that. I can deal with that. It's not that big a deal. At least I'm not like them. Right? What sins have we tolerated in our hearts? And how are we ready to take the radical, the radical action that's needed to remove it from our lives? We cannot tolerate what is wrong. But we also get the flip side here. We cannot compromise what is right. We cannot compromise what is right. If we reject or, or, or turn away from sin, and we say, okay, I'm, 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 gonna, I'm, I'm not going to tolerate that anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm going to move past that. And then we also look at our lives and go, I know God's calling me to do this, but I don't really want to do that. Where have we gotten ourselves? Because if we want to reject God's blessings and his goodness and his commands, then we can't believe that we're growing stronger in our faith. We can't believe that we're remaining faithful to his word. Right? Eliashib compromised the purity of the temple. The foreign merchants compromised the holy day of the Sabbath. The Israelites had compromised their their faithfulness in Jerusalem for years and years and years. In each case, 
You had people in a position where God had given them certain blessings. And and instead of accepting them as God's blessings, they decided they were going to use them for their gain or for their purposes or for what they thought would be best. Instead of pursuing God's intended design. Nehemiah shows us here as he responds to these situations that it requires an active step to maintain our, spirit, our, our purity in God's blessings. Right? Rejecting sin, turning away from sin is only half the battle. We must actively pursue what is good. When Jesus calls brothers to follow him in Luke 14, verse 26 and 27, he says, if anyone comes after me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brother and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Right? He doesn't just say, stop sinning and you're good. He says, no, stop sinning. Don't tolerate what is wrong, but pursue what is good. Don't compromise my law. Don't compromise my love for you. Pursue me with all that you have and all that you are. You must pursue what is right, what is good, what is true. Chase, like many boys his age, as a, as a five-year-old, is he loves Legos. He loves building Legos. And he gets focused in on it. We bought him Legos for Christmas, and he would sit at the table and work through entire Lego sets. And you go, hey, Chase, can I, can I give you a hand? Nope. No, I'm doing it. Right? He wants to do it, and he is focused. And he's not getting up from the table till he's done. Chase, you want to go outside for a little bit? Chase, you want a snack? Chase, you want this? Nope, working on the Legos, putting them together. But here's the thing. If you've done Legos, you know that Lego instructions are not always the best. All they, all they are is like the little picture, right? and then it has an arrow if you're supposed to flip it over but you're never sure if they've already flipped it over in the picture or if you're supposed to flip it over from where it's at. It's hard to follow even for me. And so there's times where Chase would ask me for help. He'd be like, Dad, this doesn't work. I'm like, okay, let's, let's look at it. And you're looking at it, you're like, yep, that's not going to work. So we take the instructions and we start looking back. And no, that seems right. No, that until you get to the, the spot where there was a, a small error. And you look at him and you go, okay, Chase, here's the deal. We got we to go back to this, back to this step, and we can fix it. And in that moment, he has a choice. He has a choice. He can either continue building the way he's building. And it's going to be close to what it's supposed to be. But it's never going to be right. Or he can go back. And he can fix it. And he can do it the right way. See, it's not enough for us to just know what is wrong. We have to turn from what is wrong and we have to pursue what is right, what is good, what is true, what is holy. Turning aside from our sin will only be complete when we commit to God's purity and God's holiness. In 1 Peter 1.15, Peter says, But as, as the one who called you is holy, you are also to be holy in all your conduct. Peter says, you are to pursue God's holiness. Will you mess it up? Yep. Absolutely, you will. But if you're pursuing God's holiness, there's forgiveness and there's redemption every step along the way that fixes what is wrong, that sets right what is broken. 
And again, that is not an easy or a comfortable step. But we must be willing to pursue God's holiness with every part of our lives. We must be willing to pursue God's holiness when we're, when we're hurting and when we'd rather lash out. But instead, we step back and we pursue God's holiness and we pray for wisdom. We pray for compassion. We pray for the ability to forgive those who have hurt us because we know we've hurt Christ far more than they have ever hurt us. We know that when it's easier to just go with the flow to let things happen, when people around you are taking the wrong path, it's easier just to say, you know what, it's fine. But instead, we must actively stand up, stand firm in the truth of God's commands and in his holiness. We know that when you're alone and nobody else knows what you're thinking, it's really easy to be negative and judgmental and bitter and complainy. I don't know if that's a word, but I'm using it. But instead, you're going to hold yourself accountable for your judgment, for your gossip, for your anger, for your bitterness, and for your selfishness. And you're going to turn and you're going to pursue the holiness of God instead of allowing yourself to stew in your sin. Maybe it's when the Holy Spirit nudges you and you know God's calling you to do something. And you're like, yeah, but that's not really my personality or that's not what I want to do or God, are you sure you're talking to me? It's easier to just keep going and pretend we didn't hear him. But we can't compromise what is right. We can't compromise the call of God in our lives. And so we step up and we step out in faith and we answer the call to faithful obedience. See, compromise is easy but it will never bring us to fulfill God's incredible purposes that he has prepared for our lives. It will never bring us to the hope and the joy that we find when we are fully and completely sold out to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So how will we set aside the excuses and the justifications for our sin in order to pursue Christ this week? See, to grow and mature in our faith, to have the Holy Spirit begin, continue, and complete the renovation of our hearts, we cannot tolerate what is wrong and we cannot compromise on what is right. But here's the thing. We don't do these things. We don't reject evil. We don't hold on to what is right in order to try to gain God's approval for us. We never forget that we aren't trying to be good enough for God to love us. We aren't trying to be good enough to earn our salvation because Jesus Christ has done everything that needs to be done for that. Because of God's incredible love for us, because of his knowledge of our brokenness, our frailty, he sent his son to live perfectly, to die sacrificially, to rise victoriously, to deliver us completely so that we might be accepted by a good, holy, and perfect God, even though you and I are far from good, holy, and perfect. No, we don't tolerate evil, and we refuse to compromise what is right, not in order to gain God's affections, but because we have been given the affections of a good, holy, and perfect God. 
We respond to him with joy and with love. And so, church family, may we go out this week into a dark and a broken culture that that wants nothing to do with the holiness we know. May we go out seeking the purity of our good, perfect, and loving God with all that we have and with all that we are. And may we celebrate his holiness with the purity of our hearts, our minds, our lips, and our hands. And in doing so, may we know the joy and the hope and the fulfillment that comes when we give ourselves fully and completely by the power of the Holy Spirit to the mission the Father has set before us for the glory of Jesus Christ. Because our God is good. And our God has called us his children. So may we walk in the holiness of his name. Let's pray together. Father God, you are good, and we thank you, and we praise you for who you are. And we know that we all walk into this place today, and and whether we've had great weeks or we've had horrible weeks, whether we've been pretty good or whether we've been pretty bad, we come as those who are still in the battle with our sinful flesh, who are still drawn to wickedness, to evil, to selfishness, to idolatry, to all the things that move us away from your good and holy name. And so we come and we, we repent this morning. We turn away from our sin and we pursue Jesus Christ with all that we have and all that we are knowing that in you we have been washed clean. That by the blood of our risen Savior, we have been made right before you, not because of who we are, not because of what we do, not because of what we can offer, but because of who you are. And so, Lord, we thank you and we praise you. And we ask that now as we prepare to go into the week ahead, to go into the lives that you have set before us, Lord, that, that we would leave, we would walk into the life ahead as different people, changed by the encounter we have had with your love, made new by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you. We thank you for who you are. We praise your great and awesome name. And in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about Erie Evangelical Free Church or our ministries, please visit www.eriefree.com or join us in person at 1409 16th Avenue, Erie, Illinois.